Welcome everyone, I'm your host, Emerson Green. So what you're about to hear is part one of a three-part series about the moral argument for God. Parts two and three are recorded, I just need to finish editing them. So today I'll be explaining a couple of reasons why I think the moral argument doesn't work. Not really systematically, just kind of big picture problems I have with it. We'll be defining some crucial terms. We'll be talking about apologetics versus metaethics. Metaethics being the engine of the moral argument. And a few apologetics canards that bother me, like immoral law implies a moral lawgiver. Humans are just animals, so there's no moral accountability, and so on. And as a side note, you'll be hearing this way before the YouTube audience. As I said, I haven't edited parts two and three yet, and even when I finish those, I need to put it all together and add the video element, which will take at least a week or two. All right, let's get going. Welcome everyone, I'm your host, Emerson Green. So I have two main goals today. First, I want to help you become more conversant in metaethics. So in listening, you'll gain some basic tools for being a part of the conversation that you would not have been equipped with if you'd only listened to the mainstream apologetics discourse about moral arguments for God. Second, I want to explain why I think the standard moral argument for God is a complete and utter failure. One thing I'm not doing today is offering a comprehensive defense of moral realism. Moral objectivity without God comes up quite a lot, as you can imagine, and you'll have a much better understanding of moral realism and why a lot of atheists defend it by listening to this. But this is not all aimed at giving the case for moral realism. The main purpose is clarifying metaethical issues that frequently come up in the apologetics discourse, correcting common mistakes, and in the process, explaining why the standard moral argument doesn't work. The unifying theme here is the way mainstream apologetics has completely failed the people who look to it to understand the issues we're discussing today. created the heavens and the earth, and morality. So imagine God standing prior to the moment of creation. He thinks to himself, Oh yeah, I need to make the moral law. Even though no one exists yet, he sees in his vast knowledge some of the things that will eventually come to pass within his creation. Torture. Hmm. Should I command or forbid that? Let's see. Impermissible, permissible, or obligatory. Does anyone have a coin? Or maybe one of those magic eight ball things that can shake up? Obviously, it seems absurd that God would choose what's commanded or forbidden arbitrarily, that there would be no reason that he chose to forbid murder and theft instead of commanding them. Surely, he had a reason. And those are the two options, right? He either had no reason, which is what I mean by arbitrary, or he had a reason. Those options are exhaustive. He either had a reason, or he didn't have a reason. In that hypothetical moment prior to creation, as he thought about acts of murder, theft, rape, and torture, vividly and perfectly understanding their every feature, 
he could see that those things were wrong. He commanded us not to commit those acts because they're wrong. The nature of merciless torture, the features of the act itself, are directly responsible for its moral status. God, for all his great power, could not have imposed any moral truth whatsoever upon the act of brutal torture, just as he was not free to impose any mathematical or logical structure whatsoever upon the world. At least, that's why my hypothetical creation account in which God flips a coin to decide whether certain acts will be commanded or forbidden seems so absurd to me. God did not issue his commands arbitrarily, nor would the opposite commands have rendered murder, theft, rape, and torture morally good. It's not God's say-so that makes actions right or wrong. Rather, God says so because he can see what's good and bad about these acts, and because he's wise, all-knowing, loving, and so on. In other words, if God exists, he did have moral reasons for issuing his commands. An astounding number of people are inclined to think differently. They think that morality is objective only if God exists. Without a divine moral lawgiver, there would be no objective moral truths. But clearly there are objective moral truths, so with those premises in hand, we have an argument for God, one of the most popular ones in existence. If you're like me, then you accept one of those premises, the one about the reality of moral truths, but you reject the other premise about God being required for moral objectivity. But moral anti-realists should also be able to see the issues I'll raise with the idea that objective morality must be grounded in God, or even can be grounded in God. The moral realists and anti-realists should be able to join forces against this god-awful argument. So, my radical claim is that in order for something to be wrong, like torturing a baby, we don't need to find out whether God exists first. We can just see that it's wrong to torture a baby without stopping, like, wait a second, does God exist? Because I can't really decide whether it's good or bad or neither good nor bad to torture a baby until we answer the question about God first. Even if God exists, he did not have to create moral truth. He's not the author of the moral law any more than he'd be the author of laws of logic. As philosopher Michael Humer once put it, if the universe has a creator, this fact could have nothing to do with objective morality, and the absence of a creator poses no problem for objective morality. Plenty of apologists make extremely confident assertions about this or that following logically from atheism. Nihilism is entailed by atheism, subjectivism is entailed by atheism, etc or somehow even more irritatingly, the more honest atheist will admit that, insert terrible meta-ethical view, follows from atheism. However, atheism would only entail a particular meta-ethical view if it were incompatible with all other meta-ethical positions, like moral non-naturalism and moral naturalism, subjectivism, non-cognitivism, and error theory. But atheism isn't incompatible with any of those, so atheism doesn't entail any meta-ethical view. So atheism doesn't entail nihilism, or whatever. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you are really not in a position to be making the moral argument. And yes, I am calling out virtually every apologist who makes the moral argument with that. A great deal of people who rely on apologetics are genuinely unaware that most philosophers are moral realists. In fact, the majority of atheist philosophers are moral realists, and that defenses of robust moral objectivity have been offered that make no reference to God. In fact, most of them make no reference to God. 
the influence of Christian apologists has been detrimental to the understanding of philosophy in this area, which is the main reason I wanted to talk about this. The moral argument, one of the most popular arguments for God in the modern age, depends entirely on metaethics. Yet most Christian apologists who write books, give talks, make videos and podcasts are stunningly ignorant of the basics. As Christian philosopher Kenny Pierce once said on Twitter, I am once again begging, nay, imploring, people who want to use metaethics for apologetics to learn literally anything about metaethics. So I'm not just dunking on Christian apologetics here. I'm not just doing that. I want to raise the level of discourse, because right now it sucks. And to be honest, I'm a little put off that I was so misled by Christian apologists on this topic. I wasted a lot of time lost in the useless dialectic between apologists and counter-apologists spawned by the moral argument, and I don't want anyone else to get sucked into the black hole of confusion sustained in existence by apologists and the unfortunate souls who only know about metaethics through them. Let's define some crucial terms and get this out of the way before we move forward. First, metaethics. In Applied Ethics, an impartial introduction, the authors distinguish between three areas of moral philosophy applied ethics, normative ethics, and metaethics. Quote Applied ethics tries to give answers to the practical moral questions we ask in everyday life. For example, is abortion wrong? Is polluting the environment permissible? Do animals have rights? Normative ethics is more abstract than applied ethics. Normative ethics tries to construct theories that account for the rightness or wrongness of certain actions, motives, and or character traits. For example, what makes both murder and stealing wrong? Is there a common ingredient to their wrongness? Can we tell a simple story about why they are both wrong? Metaethics is about even more abstract questions than is normative ethics. Metaethics tries to answer fundamental questions about the nature of morality. For example, what are goodness and badness? Are right and wrong real and objective? Are they based on emotions, or are they entirely made up? Are we capable of knowing what is good and bad? If so, how? End quote. Next, descriptive versus evaluative. Descriptive facts are value-free. For example, water is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. Evaluative facts, or normative facts, involve a positive or negative evaluation. For example, suffering is bad. It may be a descriptive fact that John is in pain, but it doesn't follow automatically that it's a bad thing that John is in pain, that we ought not inflict pain on John, that John has reason to avoid pain. Propositions that include terms like should or ought or otherwise involve assessing something as good or bad are outside the category of value-free descriptive statements. Pretty much everyone agrees that descriptive statements can be objectively true or false. There is a fact of the matter whether water is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, but not everyone agrees that there are also evaluative statements that can be objectively true or false. There are some evaluative judgments that don't have anything to do with morality. For example, aesthetics and epistemology both involve evaluating things and assigning positive or negative properties. Art can be beautiful. A theory can be unjustified. We believe that logical consistency is better than logical inconsistency. 
All those statements involve positive or negative evaluations, even though they don't have anything to do with morality. Can art be objectively beautiful? Most people don't seem to think so. Are there epistemic norms like one ought to be logically consistent? Most people do seem to think so. It may be a descriptive fact that a person is being logically inconsistent, but most people additionally think there's something bad about being logically inconsistent, that we should not be logically inconsistent, that we have reason to be logically consistent. So not all proposed evaluative facts are about morality. Next, objective morality. By objective morality, I mean there are truths about what's good and bad, right and wrong, which are true independently of the attitudes, opinions, reactions, etc. of observers. There are not only descriptive facts, but evaluative facts as well, like suffering is bad, and it's wrong to torture infants. These propositions are true, and they're true regardless of what I think about it, or what anyone else thinks about it. They are objective facts. According to William Fitzpatrick, Ethical realism begins with the plausible idea that we use ethical language to make claims that can be straightforwardly true or false. The minimal core characterization of ethical realism, according to Fitzpatrick, is roughly that ethical sentences, like wanton cruelty is morally wrong, express propositions that can be straightforwardly true or false, just as with ordinary descriptive sentences, and at least some positive ethical sentences and the propositions expressed by them are in fact true and straightforwardly so, in the way ordinary descriptive propositions are straightforwardly true. That's the core of moral realism. At least some positive ethical propositions are straightforwardly true. So consider two objective but descriptive facts. First, the Earth is not flat. It's an oblate spheroid. Second, seven is greater than two. They're both non-evaluative facts that obtain regardless of what anyone thinks about them, whether they want them to be true, etc. We know about those quite differently, and in some sense they seem like different kinds of facts altogether, even though they're both objectively true. The Earth is an oblate spheroid, and 7 is greater than 2. And as you can probably guess, I'm trying to establish a precedent. A. Objective facts can fall into different categories. For example, they're not all about the physical world or some such. And B. We can know about objective facts through very different means. The way that we know 7 is greater than 2 is not the same as the way we know that the Earth is an oblate spheroid. The broad category of objective facts is not monolithic. They don't all seem to be the same kinds of facts, and we don't all know about them in the same way. As a side note, consider how strange it would be to object at this point and say, yes, but where do these facts come from? That would seem like a poorly formed question, and there is no good answer to a poorly formed question. Just try to rephrase your thought to cut more to the heart of the matter if you want to start a fruitful dialogue. So we mentioned two objective facts that we know about quite differently, but obviously not everything is objective. For example, excitingness is subjective. Whether a movie is exciting or boring depends on how you react to it. To say a movie is boring just means that it tends to produce boredom in those who watch it. That is, facts about our reaction to the movie constitute the property of being boring or being exciting. Moral realists think moral truths are more like 7 being greater than 2, and less like whether a movie is exciting. So, to address one common point of confusion, moral objectivity does not mean facts about what causes suffering or what will lead to flourishing. Those are just descriptive facts. It may be objectively true that X or Y will lead to more suffering, 
but there's still no evaluation that it would be good to take the course that will lead to less suffering, all else equal. That would have to be a separate, non-descriptive fact. Next, subjective morality. Roughly, subjective indicates some kind of dependence on a mind or minds, or a person or persons. But there's some confusion around the meaning of subjective in this context, so before going further, I'm going to take a minute to explain why it's not defined certain ways. Some people think that moral truths are crucially linked to facts about pain and pleasure, or the experiences of conscious creatures more broadly, and I'm not saying that's a mistake. Rather, it's a mistake to think that moral subjectivism is the view that morality is really just about the experiences of conscious subjects. So, to see why, consider hedonism. In normative ethics, hedonism is the view that I was just beginning to describe, and the view described by Jeremy Bentham in the opening words of one of his books. Quote, Nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do, as well as to determine what we shall do. End quote. When Bentham asserts that pain and pleasure alone dictate what we ought to do, is he additionally making the claim that this is objectively true? Well, we don't know yet. He hasn't said one way or the other at this point. A consistent hedonist could either maintain that there are objective, evaluative facts, facts that obtain regardless of what anyone thinks about them, or they could reject the existence of such stance-independent evaluative facts. So, right off the bat, this seems like a bad way to define subjectivism. Moreover, it doesn't follow from moral subjectivism that one must be a hedonist. You could be a subjectivist who rejects hedonism in favor of virtue ethics or rule consequentialism. Or you could be a hedonist who rejects moral subjectivism. Plenty of hedonic act utilitarians are passionate moral realists, the idea that moral subjectivism means morality comes down to the experiences of conscious creatures is just totally confused. On that account, there isn't adequate conceptual space for the subjectivist who rejects hedonism, or for the hedonist who rejects moral subjectivism. So, given the coherence of these options, subjectivism should be defined differently in the metaethical taxonomy. And in philosophy, it is defined differently. I mean, this isn't like an area of controversy, I'm just addressing a common point of confusion here. In his book, Ethical Intuitionism, Michael Humer defines subjective as constitutive dependence. Moral subjectivism, quote, holds that moral properties are subjective in the following sense. For a thing to be good is for some individual or group to be disposed to take some attitude towards it. The simplest form of subjectivism states that X is good means I approve of X. Notice that since, on this analysis, good applies to whatever the speaker approves of, one could truthfully say, polygamy is good, while another truthfully says, polygamy is not good. Their statements do not logically conflict any more than if the first had said, I like pickles, and the other had said, I don't like pickles. Other forms of subjectivism substitute other attitudes for approval, and other persons or groups for the speaker. End quote. So we should distinguish between constitutive and causal dependence. Causal dependence is relatively straightforward. A kitten causally depends on the procreative act of its parents. If A causes B, then B causally depends on A. Constitutive dependence is a little different. If we say a movie is boring, that's because the movie tends to elicit a certain reaction from observers. For subjectivists, morality is made of the attitudes, opinions, dispositions, reactions, approval slash disapproval, etc., of an individual or groups of individuals. Straightforward examples of constitutive dependence 
include the properties of being funny, or sexually attractive, or boring, or exciting, and so on. As humor explains, a subjective property is one that is at least partially constituted by its tendency to elicit a certain reaction from observers. In other words, if f-ness is subjective, then part of what it is for a thing to be f is for observers to have, or be disposed to have, some particular sort of reaction to it. End quote. So there's no contradiction between my finding a movie boring and you finding it riveting. Boringness and rivetingness constitutively depend on subjects like us, that is, certain attitudes, opinions, dispositions, etc., of a subject constitute what boringness is. There's nothing objective about it. Oh, you think that's exciting? I'm afraid you're incorrect. No, it's dependent on, at least partly, in fact, constituted by, your reaction. Oh, you think she's attractive? Well, that's correct. Good job. No, these things are subjective. A moral subjectivist thinks goodness is a lot like being exciting, or being attractive, or being funny. Moral realists, on the other hand, reject subjectivism along with other forms of moral anti-realism. There are truths about what is good and bad, right and wrong, which are true independently of what anyone thinks about it. Next, the meta-ethical landscape. Joe Schmid created a helpful flowchart based on the work of Michael Humer to help understand the basic shape of the meta-ethical landscape. So for a quick survey of the general meta-ethical positions that are out there, here's a clip from The Majesty of Reason. So then what is moral realism? So I think it's helpful to think of moral realism like a branching structure of questions and answers to those questions. So the first question at the top of the branching structure, and I'll actually put, I'll put on the screen a little picture of this branching structure so people can follow along from home. But the first question is, do our moral judgments express propositions? Uh, or I guess more conservatively, do at least some of our moral judgments express propositions? Perhaps we don't want to get into all the empirical details about what all of us mean by all of our moral judgments, especially across time and societies and so on. So we can just ask, do some of our moral judgments express propositions? That is, are they truth apt? Can they be true or false? Can they have truth values? If you say no, you've got a non-cognitivist view. And if you say yes, you've got a cognitivist view. Now, under cognitivism, we have further divisions. So we can ask, are some of those moral judgments true? If you say no, none of those moral judgments are true, then you've got an error theory or moral error theory, sometimes called moral nihilism. It just says that all of our moral judgments are systematically in error. They're all systematically false. None of them are true. By contrast, if you say yes to that question, are some of those moral judgments true? You then ask the final question, is their truth value stance independent? That is, does their truth or falsity depend on us collectively or individually taking certain stances toward the world or toward certain propositions? So for instance, do they depend on our desires or our beliefs or uh, our collective values or our individual values uh, or other sorts of attitudes? If you say no, then you have subjectivism or relativism or various other forms of anti-realism. And if you say yes, then you have a more realist view. The last term I want to define is apologist, since I'm using it pejoratively. In some sense, we're all apologists for whatever view we defend. When I use apologist in this negative way, I'm referring to a person who thinks they already know the right answer, who isn't seeking truth, or genuinely open to conclusions that differ from the ones they started with, 
and isn't interested in what a smart critic of their views would say. They're not trying to figure out the way the world is. They're trying to win. That project is pretty much unrelated to open exploration and inquiry, to trying to uncover the nature of the world to whatever extent possible. The term for that, in my mind, is philosopher. Apologists weaponize philosophy to defend their opinions in a WWE-style wrestling match, and it's nothing but sophistry and rhetoric. And yes, there are atheist apologists. But the fact that so many non-believers learn about philosophy for the first time through apologetics has a lot to do with the disdain for philosophy among many atheists online, I believe. For better or worse, apologetics provided me with my intro to philosophy as a teenager. I didn't really know what philosophy was or what philosophers did, but I did want to figure out whether God existed and whether I should continue being a Christian. Based on what I learned in the first couple of years engaging with the subject, I became an atheist. But as I continued my searching, I realized that the superficiality of pop-level apologetics and the debates between apologists and counter-apologists had led me to form an unwarranted degree of confidence in my non-belief, and I had come to other hasty conclusions as well. While I was aware that some atheists were moral realists, like Sam Harris, I wasn't familiar with contemporary figures in meta-ethics like Russ Schaefer Landau, Michael Humer, or Eric Wielenberg. So reading and listening to philosophers, as well as the minority of apologists for either side that are more philosophically literate, my views on a range of subjects changed over time, including those concerning moral realism. It's not just that the apologetics version of meta-ethics is superficial relative to the literature, which could be excused since the intended audiences differ. Rather, I found out that there was a chasm between the discourse in apologetics and the discourse in meta-ethics. They might as well have been happening on different planets. In the internet trenches, Christians defend objective morals and atheists dispute that there is such a thing as objective morality. At least, in my experience, that's how it typically went. But God did not come up very often in the meta-ethical literature. For those who aren't aware, the overwhelming majority of the talk of objective morals and apologetics concerns the moral argument, whose defenders maintain that objective morality is simply impossible without God. The only alternative is nihilism, or maybe subjectivism, which they seem to think is the same thing. The idea that atheism entails nihilism is not well subscribed at all in metaethics, even by theists. According to the Phil Papers survey, the majority of philosophers are moral realists. In fact, the majority of atheist philosophers are moral realists. To someone who had only been exposed to meta-ethics through apologetics, this was completely baffling. Within the moral realist camp, there's a debate over what's called moral naturalism and moral non-naturalism, and we'll talk more about this later on. Despite the name, the naturalism versus non-naturalism dispute between moral realists has nothing to do with atheism or theism, sort of like how libertarian free will has nothing to do with politics. A communist can believe in libertarian free will, and an atheist can be a moral non-naturalist. Moral naturalism and non-naturalism are both realist positions in metaethics that accept the objectivity of morals. These are not concepts that I became familiar with as a result of listening to apologetics. I heard a lot about moral relativism, but nothing about moral non-naturalism. Instead, I heard several versions of this. Many theists and atheists alike will agree that if God does not exist, then moral values are not objective. That's from William Lane Craig. Well, I don't agree, and the majority of atheists in philosophy don't agree. Even many theists don't agree. 
Why do apologists almost never acknowledge the existence of moral realism apart from God? It's the majority view among atheist philosophers. Since most of the people with some interest in apologetics and counter-apologetics don't go on to pursue philosophy, they're never exposed to the alternatives. And by alternatives, I mean the views accepted by the majority of atheist philosophers. A multitude of people who have spent a decent amount of time reading apologetics, listening to apologists on podcasts and videos, and otherwise doing their homework, are nevertheless woefully misinformed about the range of options in prevailing views in metaethics. That is no small failure on the part of apologists. One thing I really dislike about pop apologists like Ray Comfort, Lee Strobel, Frank Turek, etc., is that their shortcomings are always at our expense. If they were just making honest mistakes, you'd think they'd occasionally, just by accident, make us look better than we actually are. They'd paper over some inconvenient truth from time to time. But on every issue, their mistakes make us look worse and our position less plausible. Here's something else I heard a million times. Atheists cannot account for the difference between humans and other animals. When a lion kills a gazelle, it's not guilty of murder. But without God, we're all just animals, right? In atheism, it's very difficult to explain why there should be any qualitative difference between human morality and animal morality in the way we intuit that. The behavior from chimpanzees in these wars that I just described is basically how the entire animal kingdom works. The strong devour the weak. Uh, we never think of animals mistreating each other as like sinning or something like this, or in, in the way that we think of that with human behavior. So the question is, why does morality suddenly start to change once you get to human beings? How do you account for that on atheism? Now, I guess my difficulty is that on an, I certainly agree that it's wrong to harm people, obviously. But it's hard for me to understand on a naturalistic worldview, such as I described, why on the worldview of naturalism, inflicting harm upon other members of our species is really wrong. It seems to me that this happens all the time among other animals. And so why is it wrong peculiarly for human beings to inflict harm on each other? All right, so let's start with that. S suppose that uh, my three-year-old nephew walks into your house, takes some book off your shelf, and tears the pages out. He hasn't done anything wrong. Or three-year-old probably old enough he has done something wrong. Make a year and a half. He hasn't done anything wrong. If I go into your house, tear some pages out of your book, I've done something wrong. What's the difference? Well, I'm capable of appreciating reasons for respecting your property that my one-and-a-half-year-old, this is hypothetical, one-and-a-half-year-old nephew doesn't doesn't have the capacity. Right? There are differences between people that allow me and you to think about our behaviors, to evaluate our behaviors, to see whether or not there are legitimate reasons for behaving as we do. Creatures that don't have that capacity don't have that capacity. It's precisely because they lack that capacity that makes no sense that the notion of right and wrong behavior gets no purchase. Lions can't reflect upon their behavior, so when they do it, it's not wrong. 
Mm -hmm. If you or I were to engage in that behavior, we can reflect upon that. We can recognize the reasons for not behaving that way. So I think the distinction is a fairly straightforward one, not, not a deep mystery or a hard challenge for the naturalist to, to respond to. Okay, I think that's a, a good answer for why we wouldn't regard animals as moral agents who would be culpable for their acts. Um, but it seems to me that at best that answer would go to show that rationality or the ability to reflect rationally on things is a necessary condition for moral behavior, but I don't see that that's a sufficient condition for moral behavior. It's still not clear to me why uh, it would be wrong for creatures who have considerably complex neurological systems uh, to inflict harm on each other on a naturalistic worldview in the struggle for survival. Okay, so the question you asked initially was, how can I explain why it's wrong for me to murder when it's not wrong for lions to murder? And to answer that question, all it takes is for me to point out a relevant difference between us, and right. you've just, I think, said, yeah, all right, so I managed to do that. The distinction between moral agents and moral patients is not a recent innovation in philosophy. Like Kagan said, it's not a deep mystery whether there is a cognitive difference between a lion and a normal adult human, and the moral relevance of this fact is clear. Just think about a child versus an adult and the difference in rational faculties between them. We hold them to completely different standards. Even though a young child is not a moral agent, they're not as culpable as an adult for the same action, they're still a moral patient. Kicking a child is not the same thing as kicking a pebble or any other non-moral patient. Hitting a baseball with a baseball bat is morally neutral. Hitting a dog with a baseball bat is not. Does that fact really come down to God's commands? Or is there something about the dog that is notably different from the baseball? Anyone can see there's a difference between animal cruelty and baseball. My claim is that the difference does not come down to what God has said about it. More to the point raised by Craig and Gavin Orland a moment ago, the difference in moral accountability between humans and non-human animals is about as mysterious as the difference between adults and toddlers. It is not in any way a serious challenge to atheism. What they're saying to my ears sounds like if atheists were intellectually honest, they would hold babies and adults morally accountable in exactly the same way. The difference between moral agents patients and non-patients comes down to the features of the beings in question, not God's will or commands. It's their nature that accounts for the difference, not whether they happen to stand in some extrinsic relation to God's nature. Hey, buddy. Yeah, what's going on there, pal? Oh my god, I just found a rat's nest slaughtered about 200 of them. <laughs> 200? Couldn't be. That's Christ. Uh, it's like sometimes a wonder, though, if our lives are really more valuable than theirs, you know what I mean? Yeah. They are. Yeah. Our, our lives are, definitely, yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Another irritating canard is the moral lawgiver argument. Sure, maybe atheists can grant that there's a moral law, but without a moral lawgiver, where do these morals come from? Who or what created the moral law? So here's Russ Schaefer-Landau answering this argument in his lecture, moral objectivity without God. Roughly, he argues that morals don't need to come from anywhere. There doesn't need to be a moral lawgiver any more than there needs to be a mathematical lawgiver or an epistemic norm giver. And the basic idea before I run through this is this, 
that someone had to make up morality. Morality is just a bunch of rules, a bunch of moral rules. That's how I'm conceiving of morality right now. It's a, kind, it's a, it's a somewhat oversimple conception, but I think that's all we need to go with tonight. So the idea is that morality is a bunch of rules. It's a big laundry list. That big laundry list might be unified by one fundamental rule, like the golden rule, for instance, but it need not be. That's a separate question that I'm not gonna, I'm gonna try not to get into tonight. But uh, regardless of how you answer that separate question, the basic idea is this. Morality consists of a bunch of rules, and like any rule, that set of rules has to have an author. The thought is that rules have to have an author. Laws need a legislator. Morality is a bunch of laws, if you like to talk of moral laws, or it's a bunch of rules, if you like to talk of moral rules. And these things need someone to underwrite them. They need someone to author them and to authorize them. And if morality is objective, then by definition, that someone cannot be any human being or even a collective of us, say a society or a culture. So who else could do it? There's an obvious answer to that question, and that is God. God's the person who could do it. But I think that underlying that line of thought I just gave you in the last 30 seconds is the following thought, namely that if any laws or rules exist, someone had to author them. Someone has to be in a position to authorize them. And I think that claim is mistaken. So I think, for instance, that the laws of mathematics and the laws of logic have no author. I don't even think that God authored the laws of logic. God is constrained by the laws of logic. When we talk about God's omnipotence, when we do, what we mean is God can do everything within the limits of logic. God cannot flout the laws of logic. God cannot make two contradictory claims simultaneously true, for instance. I don't think that's a limitate, that's, I don't think that's an undue, inappropriate, worrisome limitation on God's power. And there are other laws as well, I think, that lack an author. Or uh, the laws of rationality, for instance. I think it's irrational for someone to set out to mutilate himself just for its own sake, not because he wants, not because the mutilation is going to get him something else, but he just says, ah, self-mutilation, that's for me. I'm going for it. That person's irrational. And we can explain that by saying there's a rule of rationality that says self-mutilation pursued for its own sake is irrational. I think that rule is true. That's not the fundamental rule of rationality, but it is a rule of rationality, I think. I think it's true, and I don't think that anyone made it up. There are rules in epistemology, the study of uh, the theory of knowledge. One such rule says this, if you have a belief on the basis of no evidence and in the face of all contrary evidence, then your belief is unjustified. I think that's a true principle, a true rule about the justification of beliefs. I don't think anybody made it up. So what I've just done is I've tried to give you examples in which it's at least superficially plausible. We can talk about this, of course, in the Q&A. It's superficially plausible to think that human beings didn't make these rules up, and we don't need God to have made those rules up either. So what we have is the possibility of laws without any author. And if that's so, then the first premise of the supporting argument, the claim that the law must have an author, is mistaken. All right, that was part one of the Moral Argument series. Be on the lookout for part two, which will be about the Euthyphro Dilemma, Intrinsic Value, Hume's Law, just more stuff that casts doubt on 
the idea that God's the only way to provide the basis for morality, and whether God even can provide the basis for objective morality. All right, thank you for listening. I've been Emerson Green, and I will see you next time.